Hello and welcome to JBI Dialogues, presented by the Journal of Bioethical Inquiry as a multidisciplinary space to connect academic, professional and community voices in conversation. JBI Dialogues involves our contributors, readers and the editorial team extending the work of the journal with exchanges of ideas about its published research and up-and-coming bioethics issues and practices. My name is Edwina Light and I'm the Digital Content Editor at the JBI. In this, our first episode of JBI Dialogues, we welcome the editors of the journal's new symposium on social and ethical implications of the COVID-19 pandemic, the second part of which has been published this week. In addition to their work in bioethics, Dr. Michael Chapman and Professors Paul Komsaroff, Ian Kerridge and Ross Upshaw are all physicians working across palliative medicine, endocrinology, hematology and clinical public health. Michael, Paul and Ian and Ross, welcome. Um, and congratulations on the symposium, which brings together a remarkable and diverse set of 65 articles from 133 authors around, from around the globe. So to start, for those of, um, who don't know much about bioethics, can you tell us what it means here and why it's important? Perhaps, Ross, you could tell us a bit about that. Thanks, Edwina, and thanks for the opportunity to speak about our symposium. I'm very excited about its uh, completion. So many people will understand when we talk about the social and ethical implications, as in the title, the social side. But what makes a, an infectious disease epidemic or a pandemic uh, like SARS-CoV-2 uh, ethical? What are the ethical issues? So bioethics is largely uh, the broad reflection on the relationship between uh, humans and the biosphere, including all of the means in which technology uh, interacts with that. And so when you talk about bioethical issues, you're talking about questions that raise issues around what the right or wrong thing, you know, in the most basic way, what's the most appropriate, what's the correct, what's the right, what's the virtuous, what's the best way uh, to act or respond and treat each other, and how you distinguish that from its uh, contrary, what is suboptimal, what is unethical, what is harmful. So, uh, you know, good versus evil, right versus wrong. Uh, appropriate versus inappropriate. And I've been arguing for decades that infectious disease epidemics are quintessentially bioethical events because they really do open up all of the ways in which humans interact with the biosphere. So in the example of SARS-CoV-2, how was it that a novel coronavirus emerged into the human population? What were the behaviors and actions that made that possible? Were they the were humans, you know, appropriately interacting with the biosphere, with the ecology in a way that actually permitted this event to occur? And then there's a playbook right through all the steps and phases of a pandemic from now we have a new infectious disease and people are becoming sick and which people are becoming sick well usually it's those people who are providing care healthcare providers physicians nurses and family members and then you have questions that arise about duty to care what are the scope and limits of appropriate care you know do physicians have the right the ability the justified means of refusing care Care because they themselves may become ill. And that topic dates back, you know, as far as we can go, uh, even to, uh, you know, I'm fond of quoting from 
Thucydides' Peloponnesians' War, his uh, account of the plague of Athens, in which he very clearly describes the impact of uh, the plague on physicians. It would kill all the caregivers. And so then you start to say, well, how are we going to stop this this terrible plague? Maybe we'll have to restrict people's mobilities. Is that justified? Uh, We need new knowledge. We're going to have to experiment on people. Is that and how do we justify that? And as you look through all of the key events of a pandemic, each one of them is not defined by its extrinsic scientific nature or about what we know, but by the very questions that we have to ask about what the correct way to proceed is, how we're going to treat each other, how we're going to act collectively, how physicians are going to engage with patients, with their colleagues, et cetera, et cetera. So bioethics to me defines the scope of the human reality of epidemics. And one of the beautiful things about our symposium is that it covers the wide range of those experiences. So I hope I've persuaded people that this is really important, fundamentally important to the very nature of what it means to be human. And that's where bioethics dwells. Thank you, Ross. I think that's a really great way to set up our conversation and for anyone to sort of wade into the the articles in the symposium. To step back to the beginning, um, when you first put out the call for papers earlier this year, as all of this was starting to unfold, the first set of articles were then published in August and now the final part in October. What were the main motivations for starting this project and what were you hoping to achieve? Maybe, Michael, you could tell us a bit about that. Uh, yeah, thanks, Edwina. And um, I mean, thinking back to that time, uh, this was in March of uh, this year, 2020, and um, obviously COVID-19 was was something that we were all grappling with. And it was, I think, clear to all of us at that stage that um, that uh, you know that it was having a huge impact on on people, on uh, communities, institutions, on countries, and 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 that this was a an illness, a virus that was having a, a global impact. Um, you know, really challenging uh, all you know these uh, these uh, different countries on on many different levels. You know, health, social, and all sorts of other ways. And so there was this very definite recognition that there was an impact and there were questions and problems associated with that. And many of these seemed novel and seemed to not have great answers available to us in this kind of emerging threat. But also there was a lot of deep fear and worry, you know, that, um, uh, that was really a, a prevalent sort of sense, um, that, uh, that, uh, that, you know, that there were, that the, the world was kind of under threat from this virus. And so conscious of all of that, uh, you know, um, many people, uh, you know, including ourselves obviously got together and, and felt that it would be, it'd be really great to be able to respond to that in a kind of a curious and positive way to try and start to get some sense of um, what people were, were thinking were the big problems that COVID-19 were raising beyond just the incredibly obvious sense of this being a huge health problem that was raising uh, kind of issues to do with um, health resourcing and other things that we were conscious that there were the more subtle and, and, and yet still really important kind of problems that were being raised and, and responses that were being, uh, the being sort of uh, turned towards this. I think another thing is we're also really conscious, even at that early stage, but unfortunately this has become increasingly true over time, is that, that this was not, even though this was a global problem, there was not a, a single uh, homogenous uh, sense of this experience, you know, that different communities, different countries were uh, having a different experience of COVID-19 and, and that uh, their, their responses were very different. 
And so, again, trying to collect some sense of what those responses were, trying to do our best to learn from them and to try and share that learning um, as part of uh, coming to some understanding of what it's what it was like to be inside the pandemic, you know, in this in this period of time in 2020 uh, felt to us a really, really important step. And, and that's what we sought to do uh, by uh, sort of uh, reaching out far and wide, uh, you know, across the world to to many, many people hoping that they would contribute to this uh, this uh, shared work. And we were, you know, incredibly grateful to all the people who participated to, to make this symposium, you know, the, 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 the real, um, uh, this amazing piece of work that it, that it has become. So it's been six months since that call for papers um, and the impact of and the responses to COVID-19 have continued to unfold. And at the same time, as you said, Michael, authors from across the world started to send in their work on the meanings associated with COVID-19 from the centre of the pandemic. Could you share some of um, your reflections on what you've subsequently learnt in this time and through the symposium? Um, Ian, did you want to talk to us about that? Absolutely. So I think the first thing to say is, is that we've learned how little we knew. The um, uh, uh, is, is that it's in some ways it's not a very long time ago that, as Michael said, we put out the call for papers and we were talking about what our expectations are. And I think it's fair to say that the submissions have vastly exceeded our expectations. Not that we had low expectations, we just were genuinely unclear what would come and, and what would come has has sort of illustrated maybe four things. I think the first thing is that is diversity. As Michael said, is that there there's there's no single uniform experience of COVID-19. I mean, perhaps like all infectious diseases, it's been very good at exposing fractures and inequities in each of the countries that it's affected. So around the world, it's, it's, it's exposed um, uh, inequities in terms of uh, particularly access to health resources, but education and health and poverty and food security and all of those sorts of things. In the US, it's exposed problems of race and it's in Australia, it's exposed the ruin that is the aged care sector here. So it's so it's so it's exposed this extraordinary diversity of experience that people have been able to tell us about and write about. The second thing is that it's it's also exposed similarity. Is, is that is that within this diversity of experience, it's what's what's clear is, is that people all share um, this experience of threat of social isolation, of disruption, of concern for vulnerability, and, and also as a positive um, a concern or a resilience perhaps and a, and a sense of, of community and solidarity. The third thing is that it's it, we've learnt um, uh, the true in, impact of dynamic experience and dynamic knowledge. Um, the things that we thought we knew in March quickly became clear that we didn't know what we were talking about. So we've gained an enormous amount of dynamic information about the virus, about um, the threat, about how it's controlled or how it shouldn't be controlled. And, and arguably we've learnt an enormous amount about our own communities um, and about the global community as well. It's, it's, um, it's, it's really, I, I think, um, fomented discussions about um, things that you, perhaps you wouldn't think would be part of a discussion about a pandemic, so globalisation and 
you know, economic rituals and um, the degree to which international travel is important. So, you know, a whole series of interesting discussions. And so the last thing, and again, Michael touched on it, is that I think um, as as um, uh, as the organisers of this symposium and as the journal, we've, we've again been reminded of the value of community because I think we've all been personally overwhelmed. And this is not about COVID, it's, it's just about ourselves. I, I think we've been sort of touched by the strength of, of, in this case, the sort of scholarly community and 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 the contributors' incredible generosity of spirits and, and willingness to engage in a task, you know, to people like, you know, perhaps they knew Ross, but they, they certainly didn't know Michael or I. And they were, uh, um, and and uh, and they, I'm sure they knew Paul as well, but but they were um, were willing to engage and share their ideas, and and that's been really humbling and wonderful. In the editorial, you comment on that diversity of papers from that community, um, and you describe a, a sort of a rich variety of substantive issues in which they deal, um, and the range of their theoretical, cultural, and geographical op- origins. Um, you organise these into seven themes and with 65 articles and 130-plus authors, that must have been a task. Um, can you tell us a bit about those themes and, and their significance? Maybe, Paul, you could tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, look, thanks very much, Edwina. Um, this gets back really to Ross's opening comment when he commented on the um, ethical significance of the epidemic or pandemic. Um Traditionally or conventionally, an epidemic was thought of as a purely medical event. People get sick. Um, but we, we've we been able to see, certainly working through this project, how an epidemic is not just a purely uh, you know, biological event where people get infected with, um, with, with a virus or some other um, organism, but rather it has many different facets, many different components. And it's really a, a sort of assemblage of different parts. Um, there's a medical component. Um, there's also a social and political one. There's an economic aspect. And there are personal dimensions of experience as well. And each of these different components has um, ethical aspects to it. And that's what really what, what our authors have been, um, have been uh, clarifying and working through um, in, a, in a very careful and rigorous way. And those different facets or components are reflected in the themes that we identified. And some of these really were, you know, came up um, in a, a you know, very clear and repetitive way that, that, that there were many different areas um, that were common amongst the authors. Um, certainly there were large-scale views trying to understand the nature of the of, of a pandemic in general and how the pandemic, how this particular pandemic was playing out in relation to those very large-scale issues. There were global perspectives, um, the question of climate change, for example, the um, the, the impact on globalisation, as Ian mentioned, the the issues or divisions that are um, that that were that came into came into focus and in many ways were magnified by the pandemic, such as um, the the racial issues in the United States that then propagated around the world. But there were also the personal experiences of individuals um, who were locked up in their homes, who were denied the opportunity to see loved ones and so on. And this evoked a very different set of 
personal experiences of, of longing, of hope, of sadness, of fear, and so on. Um, there were issues of a fairly, of a more conventional and familiar bioethical kind about how to um, allocate resources, how to make, make decisions, but there were also new issues about the nature of the clinical experience. How do you care for someone who's dying um, when you can't make physical contact with them, when you're um, looking at them through a glass or through a television screen, when they can't have um, contact with their own loved ones? You know, these are, these are, some of these are very, very new experiences that we've never had before. And there was another category of papers that dealt with um, what we've called surveillance in the panopticon, the sense that the, the, the political response to the um, pandemic required um, new uh, relationships and maybe the eroding or compromise of, um, of, of political and human rights that we've previously taken for granted. So in all of these areas, we had a number of reflections often from different perspectives, often with contending, um, contending outcomes and conclusions. So um, as Michael and Ross and Ian have all emphasised, uh, what we came out of this with was um, a, 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 an extraordinary richness of reflections, of ideas, of possibilities and, and proposals for how we might move forward from here. I mean, with, with all this wonderful contributions, um, and I'm assuming people's sort of appetites have been wet to dive in, there is a lot of COVID news and analysis and commentary for people to digest, and that's whether it's in the mainstream and social media, as well as from academic and clinical sources. And I wonder if um, maybe, Ross, I know you touched on this at the beginning, but maybe you could just make the case for why someone should make the time to read some of the papers in this symposium. Thanks, Edwina. Well, I could be sort of flippant and say many people have a lot of time on their hands when they're kind of in lockdown uh, and may wish to avail themselves of, of these papers as a means. But I think there, there's three reasons to read this. One is for a broader appreciation of the diversity of experiences related to bioethics uh, that are represented in the papers. Two is that uh, we had asked people to be uh, relatively brief and non-academic. So uh, even though this is an academic journal, uh, each of the contributions is uh, very short, uh, exceptionally readable. The quality of the writing in this volume is uh, really quite remarkable. And three, it will help in their uh, understanding of all of the diverse impacts that this uh, 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 pandemic had, not just on uh, the world around them, but many of them ask, many of the papers ask you to sort of reflect upon yourself, your views on, on how the world is constituted constituted and put together and, and challenge you to sort of rethink how uh, we are situated in the world and how we're going to think about that going forward. So I think they're, they're quite inspiring. I think they're quite enlightening. And I think they're exceptionally well done. And I am so pleased with our colleagues to, uh, on short notice, come up with papers of such insight and quality on short notice. It was really quite remarkable and I think uh, really laudable. It's probably um, worth me noting too that all, all the articles in the symposium are free to read. 
So whereas people may not have access to some of this sort of scholarship um, in other circumstances, yeah, they're available to anyone and everyone. Given all that you've said about these contributions in this symposium, I know this is probably a, a, a difficult question, if not impossible, but if you had to highlight a paper um, that someone might begin with, could anyone say which one it would be and why? I'm, I'm happy to go first, Edwina. It's Ian. Great. The, um, uh, I mean, for me, the, one of the beauties of this whole symposium is their incredible richness and the fact that you can dip in and out of them. As, as Ross says, they're brief, so they're, they're, you, you get in, you read this wonderful idea and then you leave it um, and then you can reflect on it. So that's great. For me, I'm going to take a, a one of the organisers' prerogatives and give you two, the, the two that I, that I just found wonderful. Uh, one is a paper by Jingbao Nai and Carl Elliott on humiliating whistleblowers. Um, this is, to me, this was just a staggering piece of writing. Um, uh, Jingbao Nai is, a, is an extraordinary um, Chinese New Zealand uh, bioethicist, and Carl Elliott is a bioethicist well known to many around the globe. Uh, both of them write incredibly eloquently, and they give a description of the very early phase where um, some Chinese physicians were trying to bring COVID-19 to the world's attention. It's incredibly moving writing. It's, 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 it's a narrative descriptions of the big beginning of something that has become overwhelming to the world, and, and I strongly encourage people to read it. The, the other is a paper by Chris Jordans, who uh, is an academic a bioethicist from Sydney, um, who, who in his paper, um, Imagining and Preparing for the Aftermath of the COVID-19 Pandemic, he, he pursues one really simple idea, which, which is, is that when we think about prioritising health professionals for vaccination and therapy and care and all of those sorts of things, and that's been a pretty dominant theme around the world, he says, Actually, there might be others who are not health professionals who have a really important caring role, right? Um, mothers, people caring for, you know, multiple dependent individuals um, in institutions or outside them. Um, uh, so he says that is, we shouldn't take it for granted that we should privilege health professionals. And I found that incredibly confronting and just wonderful. Thank you, Ian. Michael. Uh, thanks, Edwina. Uh, difficult task to pick just one paper, I do say. But, um, uh, yeah, I think um, just reflecting on this for our discussion tonight, um, I've been thinking a lot about a paper by uh, an American philosopher by the name of Alfonso Lingus, uh, a paper entitled The New Fear of One, one Another. And um, for those that uh, don't know um, Alfonso's work, and I do highly encourage anyone who's interested to, to certainly read some of it. Um, Alfonso's, you know, had a long career thinking a lot about, uh, you know, community and how people relate and the, the questions that raises and the meanings that uh, that poses for all of us. But he's, for this paper, which is on one level has a quite a simple simple uh, kind of core message is, is that um, the one of the challenges of COVID-19 is that it's inspired all of us to, to some degree necessarily fear each other. Um, and that at the same time, it's also made it incredibly clear that we need each other now more than ever. And I think it's that, that core dichotomy of the challenge 
of interconnection and the challenge of community and the absolute necessity of it for me has been one of the the real uh, the real lessons of of this this year this experience of COVID nineteen for me personally and within my interactions as a clinician and an academic and uh, so for me this this paper um, touches some very deep points and uh, yeah, I'd really encourage it to anyone who wishes to to read it. Um, Ross Paul. A paper that made a big impression on me was one by um, Claire Colebrook, um, an Australian cultural theorist now working at Pennsylvania State University in the United States. And Claire wrote about violence and the different forms of violence um, that are bound up with the pandemic. And she talked about slow and fast violence um, and the ways in which the pandemic has differentially affected um, um, different components of society, especially in the United States. And she drew attention especially to the way in which um, poorer and especially black people are particularly vulnerable in this setting, Um, and yet they're called upon again and again to make sacrifices uh, to save the society um, that has treated them in many in many ways so brutally and so cruelly. And she ends with the question about, uh, which really was perhaps the question that stimulated many people to become involved in the Black Lives Matter movement, which is why should we make the sacrifices that we're being called upon to make to defend a society against the onslaughts of this pandemic um, when we, we, the, the, the effects of the society on us have been so cruel and so devastating. What's, and really, ultimately, do we really want to make the sacrifices to save a society that may not even be worth saving? Very potent, very challenging um, uh, question that I, I think we, um, that I found very confronting when I read. Thank you, Paul. And Ross. Thanks. So uh, as someone who's been told his thinking makes Schopenhauer look cheerful um, <laughs> a relatively dark worldview, uh, the papers that, 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 that I liked was Hope and Optimism, Spinoza's Perspective on COVID-19. So when I was a, a graduate student, I did a whole course on Spinoza. And as I went into my medical career, Spinoza's thought, I think, kind of drifted into the background that has always been a shadow. But this notion of hope, I think, was really important. And Paul's paper talks on hope. Uh, and the interview I have with uh, Eunice Kamara talks about hope as well. So I've been kind of of the mind that extinguishing hope from my worldview uh, to face the world in its, you know, most uh, essential characteristics, void of any uh, sort of tainting by things that you by by a world of counterfactual might maybes that we that may be misleading i think helps me return to thinking through uh what hope may be uh and what role it could play in a bioethics 
in the aftermath of COVID, because I think we're going to need some creative ideas that are leading us to uh, normative spaces that currently don't exist. And if hope is the bridge to that new view of how we may be uh, best uh, deployed to work together and live together, not just as humans, but as uh, as as uh, uh, beings in an ecosystem, then I think that was a real way for me to start to rethink uh, and challenge my own pessimism uh, about the way things have gone. So I was really quite inspired by those papers that were pointing sort of green shoots of hope of a new way of thinking about uh, humans' interactions with the world. Just to finish up, you've you've noted that in the present collection um, may stand as a testament to early efforts to act in the face of COVID-19. So what comes next in bioethics or the JBI? And maybe I'll just make a brief comment and then let the others um, uh, others also um, um, add something. Uh, when we started off, as Michael said, um, our focus was on the immediate experience of an unfolding experience that was that was new to everyone. We had no idea where it was going. Uh, and what we wanted to plot was the nature of that process of exploration and discovery. And I think we've, 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 we've achieved that to some extent, but what we've also come to understand ourselves is that this is going to be an ongoing, probably never-ending process. Uh, it wasn't a matter of starting at one point now and then at a later time coming back and reflecting um, it retrospectively because that isn't going to happen. Rather, we're immersed in an ongoing process where these issues that we've identified will continue to mature and there'll be new new components to them, new aspects to them that we hadn't anticipated. Um, So I think that what will happen next is that we'll come back to these ideas that that have been germinating in this issue and we'll look to see where they went where these themes uh, where, where how these themes developed what direction they went in and whether in fact the speculations that people made were borne out whether the fears that people had were, were actually came to fruition um, or whether um, Ross's pessimism, or the possibility of hope um, actually was was what what came to dominate. We'll find out ultimately, but maybe not for a long time. Thank you, Paul. Unless anyone else has anything else to add, I think that's actually a really lovely place to finish up our conversation. So, um, Michael, Paul, Ian and Ross, thank you for your time today. Um, And to our listeners, thank you for joining us for JBI Dialogues. Um, A transcript of this audio resource is available on our website, bioethicalinquiry.com, where you'll also find links to these symposium articles and other journal issues. For JBI updates, subscribe to the website to our email newsletter or follow us on Twitter at Bioethic Inquiry. The Journal of Bioethical Inquiry is the official journal of the Australasian Association of Bioethics and Health Law and the University of Otago's Bioethics Centre. It's published by Springer Nature.